Welcome, welcome back. This is For Us, the Black Maternal Child Health Podcast, also known as BMCH. I am your host, Naima Mohammed. This is the premier center for all things related to Black maternal child health. I hope you're ready to listen to today's conversation. I'm excited for it. Let's get into it. Welcome. Hi, Diana. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being on the For Us, the Black Maternal Child Health podcast. And I'm excited for today's conversation. Me too. Oh, good. Good, good, good. So, Diana, can you tell us about yourself, your background, what you are currently doing in the world of public health? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, again, thank you for having me on here. So, a little bit about me. Like we kind of mentioned before we started recording, I want to lead with like the things that I think actually make me who I am. I do have a background in public health. That's how we connected. I also have a background in exercise physiology, but I don't think that those are the things that like, if I was going to give my elevator pitch about myself that I would lead with, I probably would start with the fact that I have an older sister that I adore in a relationship with her that I think has made me a better woman. She has a child now that I adore and being an auntie is probably top five highlights of my life. Like literally when I'm a little, you know, blue, let me call my nephew. <laughs> his little cutie face. I literally, I answer the phone and say, hi, cutie nephew, because his little face just lights me up inside. <laughs> yeah, those those are the things. I have an amazing mother that I attribute most of my success to in the sense that there were a lot of times where I thought, you know what? I ain't gonna make it. There were, there were some times a couple years ago where, that come to Jesus meeting with her is what kept me on, kept me earth side. I am an aunt, a sister, a daughter. I am also a girl's girl. What I do with my podcast and the platform that I'm trying to build, Change Our Outcomes, is rooted in resource allocation, resource finding for women. I think really? that so much of what goes on in the world or goes on in the space of women there's always the secret like underlying bubble of, well, I didn't even know that existed or gatekeeping sometimes is what some women are accused of. But ultimately, I think a lot of us legitimately just don't know. And because of the scarcity connected to patriarchy, sometimes some women do feel like oh, I can't share this because there might not be enough to go around. One of the things that I pride myself on is never being a gatekeeper. I like to tell things. I like anything I know, I'm going to tell the next person. So that is also something that I feel like if someone asked me about me that I would say. And then lastly, I do work in public health currently as an HIV prevention and outreach specialist. Simply put, I go out to the community and educate people on what exactly the HIV virus is, how AIDS and HIV work on like a molecular biological level. Like what exactly is that virus? There are a lot of misconceptions I'm learning about what HIV is. So I go into the community and I educate people about that. And we specifically target Black women and girls, women of color, just women, period, because heterosexual, cisgendered women are often left out of conversations about HIV. So the nonprofit I work for is very, we are very heavily focused on educating women specifically about their personal vulnerability. Because again, a lot of cishet women do not realize that being cisgendered and in heterosexual, seemingly monogamous relationships will not protect them from HIV. That is a virus that has no, it does not discriminate. So that is what I do currently. I am a certified health education specialist. As I mentioned, I have a master's degree in public health, which focused on health promotion. So primary prevention is my girl. And um, I have a background in exercise physiology. I did that first 
that's my undergraduate degree. And I do very much lean into physical activity as a as a pass for public health, but I'm also from a decolonized mind space that a lot of what we know in modern Western medicine is rooted in anti-Blackness. So I'm starting to actually move away from not encouraging physical activity, but leaning into it in a way that like, that seems almost not demeaning, demonizing, I don't know. Like a lot of my platform originally stemmed from the fact that I know from the data that Black women don't get a lot of physical activity. And I'm like, see y'all, if we did more, we wouldn't get these diseases. But then when you start the benchmarks for these diseases are were rooted not in science, but in direct opposition to the Black body back in the 16, 17, 1800s. It's like, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe y'all not went to something the way I thought y'all were. So I'm looking for new avenues to still encourage physical activity, but not make it the end all, be all. Like at one point in my career, I definitely was. And that's me, Diana. The girl who will talk about anything with anyone at any time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. it. It is a pleasure to have you here. And to also, I receive leading with the expansive part of who you are versus like the accolades and and such. So I I appreciate you leading with that. That, that says a lot. But it also is a great segue into my ne- next question of how did you go from exercise science to public health? Oh, perfect. Okay. So kind of like I was starting to get into when I, so the funny thing is I started, if we really want to get technical, I started as a biology pre-med major. (laughs) So when I went to college, we'll go back even further. When I was in the fifth grade, fifth through eighth grade, I participated in my school science fair and I won every year. And with that, I would go to the district science day. Yeah. Yeah. The district science day was actually held at my alma mater. It was not my alma mater at the time. But I was so in love with science and the buildings that we had here, had there, shout out to Mathilde, that was our science building. It, it looked so heck savvy. Now I realize that as a child, it was just in direct opposition to my raggedy middle school. <laughs> but it was just like, it was science everywhere. They had stuffed animals, not like flush, but like taxidermied animals. They had beakers everywhere. It was crazy. So in those four years, I was literally the first time I went, I was like, mom, I'm going here. And I did. I applied early admission, all of that jazz. I only applied to that school and I went there. So I started as a biology pre-med major. I've always loved science. But then I got there and realized not only aesthetically was this university in direct opposition to my raggedy middle school, it was also slightly academically in direct opposition to my rather pedestrian public high school. So it was a little challenging for me. And the challenge, what made me back away from biology was not that, oh, it's so hard, I'll never get it done. If I put my mind to it, I would have gotten it done. However, the challenge made me reflect on the fact that is this something that you want to do? Do you want to be a doctor because you want to be a doctor or because your whole life you've been smart and people told you, oh, you're going to be a doctor. Oh, you're going to be a doctor. And I'm like, okay, yeah. But what really what it was is that I've always wanted to help people and I've always been intrigued by science, but growing and learning and realizing, you know what? Not only is organic chemistry kind of hard, I don't even know if I want to get through orgo to then have to do the MCAT and all of those other things and just started to realize that it was a dream that I wasn't even sure was my own. So with that, I was very fortunate, unlike some college students, that my freshman year and sophomore year, my academic advisor, shout out to this white man, because I think that also is an interesting part of this story. I went to a PWI, so it's not that interesting that he was a white man, but that he took his time with me is, I think, the part that is interesting to me. But shout out to him. He 
he could sense also that like, you sure you really want to do this? Because he was like, yeah, you, you'll be fine. Like you'll get through chemistry. We can get you in summer school, whatever. But like, do you want to do this? So we talked, we had a long little session about like, what am I actually passionate about? I was really into sports and sports medicine. When I was a biology pre-med major, what I wanted to do, or I said I wanted to do was be in that room. I want to do sports medicine. I to be a team doctor, something. He said, okay, that's still a thing that you can do. Maybe not as a doctor, but you can be involved in sports and science and all of those things. How about you go check out our exercise physiology program in this building? And I'm like, uh, okay. So he linked me up with the director of that program. Oh, for him that he linked you up. Yeah, that he took the time to like really get, because I look, I've never been ashamed to cry. I might have to do it in private, but I've always been a crier. And I felt safe with him enough to be like, you know what? This really is like weighing on me. This is hard. I'm confused. I want to drop out low key. So what what am I going to do? So he led me that way to that department. And he was right. I loved everything about exercise physiology because I feel like from, if you don't know anything about kinesiology, ex-phys, exercise science, there is a lot of misconceptions as far as like a lot of people assume that I went to school to be a personal trainer. And I'm like, well, no, not exactly. I'm qualified to do that. But what I learned in ex- exercise physiology was about like the science of what exercise does to your body, not on a physical, like physique level, but like cells, organ, tissues. Oh, okay. So like a lot of my, not coworkers, <laughs> classmates, some of them went on to be clinical exercise physiologists and they performed stress tests in like cardiac rehab facilities and different things. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see. We had a very small class. A lot of I have two friends that I have that have gone on to be nurses. One is a nurse practitioner. We learned a lot more science, and I think people realize more so than like, yes, I took a hands-on practical application class, and yes, in my real life, I have done physical, not physical training, personal training. I'm a group fitness instructor now, but in theory, that is not what I went to school for. I just have those same acquired, like transferable skills, I guess. So anyway, we're taking the long way around the house. So anyway, let's, okay. let's go inside. So I switched to X-Men and I loved it. I loved the science of exercise. I was very intrigued by the way physical activity could mitigate chronic illness. Chronic illness is what I was really interested in as far as like diabetes, obesity, pretty much any disease you can think of other than like obviously things that go on with your eyeballs and stuff can be mitigated with physical activity even some neurodegenerative diseases you can at least mitigate some of the symptoms or like slow down the the onset with physical activity so that was really interesting to me and when I got out of college I went into the field and I still slightly had a dream of working with a professional team but long story this one is a short one real brief I did an internship where the people that were precepting me kind of discouraged me because they said I wasn't like that I might not have had the personality to go work on like a team. Not personality, but like I wasn't loud. I'm not I'm not about to yell. And they're like, if you get in these little teams, like if you get on a sports team, they don't want you to like yell. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. That's never been my thing. I've always been a teacher at heart, but I'm not about to yell at you. I'm, I'm not even a person who, who likes to see like when people make those videos of like coaching little league teams, they yelling at kids. I don't get down with that. So like she was probably right, but in the moment it's stunned. So anyway, we carry on. So I didn't get into that, but I did become a certified strength and conditioning specialist. With that, I then, after that internship, after undergrad, I went and did corporate wellness. I worked for a company that did other people's wellness programming. So I worked for a company called Health Fitness. Health Fitness had contracts with other places. I worked at a Honda of America Manufacturing in Ohio. So I 
to there and we did group fitness. We did the whole gamut. Basically of everything that I learned in school, but I did an eight hour work day. So I did like the assessments of like flexibility, body weight, body mass, all of that. But I also taught group fitness. And I also did this. I also know a little bit about how to calibrate a treadmill, all of those things. So like it was a real catch all, not a catch all job, but it, I was able to use all of my skills. So I did that for four and a half years right out of college. I did that up until all the transitions I've made recently. So while I was there, I realized that as much as I enjoy fitness and physical activity and some of those components, I was like, what I really want to do is teach people about physical activity, not really do it with them. Now, group fitness is fun. I'm I'm probably never going to stop doing group fitness just because it's fun. However, I wanted to teach people, this is why you should care about your weight. This is why you should care about maybe some of these weird symptoms that you're having and your doctor's telling you, hey, you should walk. Here's why they're telling you to walk. So I was like, what can I do that I can use these skills, but teach people? I want to teach. I've always, I probably always want to be a teacher, low key, but <laughs> neither here nor there now. But yeah, so I was like, what can I do? So when I applied to grad school the first time, I actually did apply for an exercise physiology program to be a clinical exercise physiologist. Again, a move made out of fear, not so much practical or passion. So like, oh, well, this makes sense. I'll go be an exercise physiologist. I got this degree. Well, of course I'll go do that. I got denied from school, which was a blessing in disguise because I didn't want to do that for real. Yeah. So a couple months, probably six months or so. And I really started just examining what can I do with teaching and exercise and all those things, chronic disease. And I was like public health, but I didn't know too much about public health because I'm a first gen college student and I don't, I just literally don't know anyone that works in the field. So I'm like, this sounds right. I found a program at Northern Illinois University and it was an MPH program, but the focus was health promotion and education. And I was like, yeah, yeah, health promotion. That's what I want to do. I want to do health promotion. And it's funny because the place that I worked at the time when I started school, we absolutely had a health promotion director, but I saw what she did and I was like, I don't want to do And this is not her job correctly, but I just think it was categorized wrong. She was a dietitian. And she did like our food and nutrition side of stuff. It was just a weird job title for her to have as a dietitian because she really did food focused things. So I don't know why she was our health promotion coordinator. But anyway, she's a great girl. Love her. But anyway, so I was like, health promotion education, that that sounds right. I don't know what I'm gonna do with it yet, but that sounds right. So two years later, got I had an MPH in health promotion and education and I became a certified health education specialist. Still working out the kinks on what exactly is going to be the the next step in the journey or the end goal. But now I am at least closer. And that is the long short of it. Really the long, long of it. <laughs> I'm here for the journey because I think that informs how you move next. Because how did you go from your MPH in health promotion and, and health education to HIV AIDS? Because if you're in public health, you know, like HIV AIDS is a is a whole world within itself. Yeah. And it's just, sometimes it's hard to kind of understand, like, how does chronic disease, how is that connected into, into HIV AIDS? You want to know how I got here? Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so after I got my NPH, I graduated during the pandemic and it was real ugly out there on the job field. So a little, another informed little piece of data here. When I was in grad school, I remember telling my mom, I want to work at a university. And she was like, okay, that's wonderful, Diana, but what are you going to do? I was like, I don't know. 
But from what I'm learning in school, I think that's a job that I could have. And she was like, okay, girl. I literally told her this probably like 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. So she was like, okay, go off, sis. And I was like, okay, yeah. So I kind of put that in the back of my mind. And then, <laughs> then I graduated and the pandemic hit during. So I graduated in August and had to do an internship. I did my internship at my local county health department. And though I'm ever forever grateful for them for allowing me to come in their space during that time, because it was a very hectic time. I realized while there, uh-uh, this ain't for me. This is not for me. So I was like, well, let's scratch that off the list. I don't really want to work at the health department, though I did go on to apply in other county health departments. But again, God knew that that's not where I wanted to go. So I never got those jobs. Well, I got one, but I turned it down because the money wasn't right. Come to find out that was going to be a running theme in my journey. But anyway, so get that the health department and I started looking for jobs and it was rough. Um, when I graduated in August, I immediately started looking I think I had my first interview probably in the middle of August. And then I got called back about the job the day after Labor Day. And I was like, lit, that's the job that I turned down. But anyway, so when I turned that job down, obviously I had to get back, you know, get back to the grindstone. And I'm looking and I'm looking in between, between probably not having the most optimized resume, being a fresh grad, being the pandemic, I was just having a hellish time. So... New Year comes, whatever, I'm still in my old job, no big deal, because I do like my old job. I just was trying to, I was leaving my new job solely, my old job, I was leaving solely because I had graduated. So like there was no rush. I lived with my mom. There was no pressure. So I just kept looking. It was kind of discouraging, but I kept looking. And then finally around, it's so interesting that the way life unfolds, that like the markers that I have to remember these things is my sister got married the same year that I got this job. So like I remember getting okay. the call about the interview and like, so I had done the interview and then they sent me like some essay questions, probably like weed people out. I got them the same day as like her bridal shower. And then I got called back for the job right during her bachelorette party. And like, it just all kind of works out. Oh, that wow. yeah. yeah. It was a job at Ohio university, which so funny. I have on OU sweatshirt, OU hat right now, but it was at Ohio university. The coins, the coins were not right. But the way it made my heart so happy to go work at a university. So I did that. Cool. Bet. Miserable because I'm broke. We fast forward 365 days. I'm looking for a job again because the job that I got at OU, as much as I loved it, it was a term position ironically brought on by COVID. It, I was a well-being support manager in the Office of Health Promotion, and they wanted people to do special, me and my coworker at the time, we did specialized programming for underserved communities. I put that in quotes because okay. underserved or are y'all intentionally leaving them out however so I focused on black college girls while I was there that whole thing but it came to an end because it was one year and the university did not do their best in my opinion trying to keep the role but again for the best because around the same time that my job was ending my boyfriend got his dream job in Florida and I was like well I'm moving to Florida anyway so whatever and with that I was on the job search again and again ended up looking at like Maryland's health department, but specifically in Baltimore. Uh, interviewed yeah. jobs in the Bronx, all sorts of things before he got this job, obviously. So I had been interviewing, nothing was panning out. So then I was on LinkedIn, right? Probably a couple weeks before I was leaving my old job and I saw a posting for the position that I have now. And what drew me to the position was that the executive director was a black woman and her target audience was women and girls. Now, it didn't mean nothing to me at the time that it was HIV. So it's interesting that you say that. And now also being in the field that I realized that HIV and AIDS in and of itself is such a huge, it's its own subsect of public health. 
Yeah. That's how I got here. I had no specific interest in HIV, sex education, none of that. I was drawn to the mission and the woman leading the mission. Yeah. So for my job, the job that I have now, I actually had to do a presentation. And the presentation, I forget what the exact subject matter of the presentation was, but ultimately I had to look up facts about HIV just for my own person. So I wouldn't be looking like no idiot during the interview. I this thing about HIV and I was like wow this is crazy oh wow I'm moving to a city that's top five in the nation for HIV transmission oh wow black women are right underneath the MSM population for transmission I had no idea so between personal intrigue and the job in and of itself my job title is HIV prevention and outreach specialist so the job description was heavily focused on community outreach one of the qualifications was to have your CHES or your Certified Health Education Specialist. It matched my credentials and all the other things. HIV actually was like the last thing on my mind when I took this job as far as like interest, if that makes sense. So yeah, I got here because her focus is primary prevention and education. And that is where I'm rooted. So the, it's kind of interchangeable with the whatever the disease is. Prior to this getting this job, I also interviewed for a job with the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. Or Again, the chronic disease didn't matter to me. <laughs> Just education was my was my goal. Yeah, so again, tuberculosis, HIV, asthma. I do have a special interest in HIV now, but I also don't think that I will stay in the field because of how heavy it is. But that's how we got here. Can you speak more about how heavy it is? Absolutely. So it's interesting, again, I've kind of repeatedly said this, that I'm in health promotion and education. So when I took the job, as I mentioned, it was community outreach and things like that. So I'm like, oh, this will be, and this is why what I just said probably sounds so cavalier to someone who actually works at HIV. When I say it didn't matter the, the disease state, to me, it really did it because the tactics are the same. Prevention is prevention. That is not the case with HIV. Yes, on paper, HIV is a chronic disease, and I would use the same tactics in theory that I would use for any disease, social marketing, social media, all of those same prevention tactics can be used for HIV. However, due to decades of stigma and misconception, so many misunderstandings about HIV and what it is, it makes even the simplest job, not to say that prevention is easier than like tertiary and secondary prevention but in theory working in primary prevention I'm trying to keep people from getting a disease so like we in theory have the easy part I'm educating you on what it is how not to get it boom bow that should be enough in theory if I do my job well enough you won't need tertiary prevention you won't need medication I'm trying to get you there so it should be simple so in my in my mind primary prevention is the simple part however again HIV does not follow that rule because even working in prevention, I have people I have noticed, and my boss told me this would happen. I have some sort of slight stigma by association, even on me. So I don't work with people living with HIV. Not there's anything wrong with that at all. I don't. I hope that's not how that comes off. I don't work with people living with HIV. I don't work with case management or anything like that. Again, I work in education. Yet you would think that I had a shirt on that said, "Hi, I have HIV" or something. The way people act about even wanting to engage with what I do for work. I've had friends who are like, we'll talk about something else. That's crazy, girl. I'm just telling you the data. Imagine if I had to tell you that you had a reactive test, but they don't be thinking like that. So it's very 
very weird. I have it's become heavy because of the stigma and the fact that no matter which way you slice it, HIV has just a bad reputation. <laughs> I don't know if that's the appropriate way to say it, but it's just it's hard because people don't even want to hear the education. They don't want to hear about prevention, let alone, hey, maybe you should get tested once a year. Hey, you're switching partners, you should get tested. I do also, irrespective of my job, I volunteer at my city's LGBT center. It's just called the center. Center. Center of like Orlando. I volunteer every Sunday and I do HIV testing. The way people don't want to get tested is so interesting. Obviously, the people that I see are people who are actively getting tested. However, I see such a small amount of people or like people only come in when they are having, not having a crisis, but are coming in maybe off of a potential exposure. Yeah. It's never, I don't see a ton of people who are getting routine testing, which that's not to condemn anyone, but it's just my observation so far, the few months that I've been testing. Like, and and when people even come in for testing on Sunday, you can get HIV testing and other STI testing, or you can get just STI or you can get just HIV. Sometimes people will come in, get other tests and don't want to get an HIV test because they are just afraid of knowing and it's just really interesting. The whole thing is interesting. The stigma that surrounds it is interesting. The stigma that I now feel being associated with HIV, which is so ugly. Like, it don't bother me in the sense that, like, I don't care. I know y'all are, y'all are done. But it's proximity. But it, yeah, but it's interesting. Like, wow, y'all really don't want to hear about this. But then you're shocked and condemning people when people do have reactive tests. The first time I had to tell someone that they had HIV or that they, we do antibody testing. So technically, I don't do confirmatory testing. So I'm not testing for the virus. But I told them they had a reactive test. They bawled. They bawled. And they cried and sobbed. And the things that they brought up were not, I'm afraid I'm going to die or paying for medicine. or It was anything relative to the disease itself. Everything that they were crying about, which, let me start with this, I respect it and I cried with them. However, everything that they cried about was being afraid that the people around them would not love them anymore because they had HIV. They were worried more about people disowning them, which I think speaks volumes about HIV and HIV, not HIV, HIV stigma. I think that speaks volumes because prior to me telling them their their status, we were talking about how, you know what, HIV is a product disease, no biggie, we chopping it up. We going back and forth about how it's not that big of a deal. The moment it was that person, their world was shattered. And it goes to show you, again, this he was a little bit younger than me. He was not worried about his prognosis as far as his health. That was the last thing on his mind. And I think that says a lot about HIV stigma and why it's so hard working in the field and why I can't do it long term. Wow. I did not think that was still the case. Yet, only because like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little older than you. So my my reference point of HIV AIDS was like my aunt. Growing up, she had, she was diagnosed with HIV from her husband. And as she got older, it was more of like managing her care and making her comfortable. But I remember it being a thing that you saw in immigrant communities of like, you know, women who either came from places of war or violence and women were used as tools in those conflicts or in those in those violent places or in those violent times as ways of weaponizing, you know, the war. 
And so in the case of my aunt, she was she was a victim of that. She was a victim of rape, and but it was also at the hand of her husband. And so in the case of her, it was just, it became just maintaining. So that was always like my reference point of HIV AIDS. And then growing up in the 80s and seeing how it was rolled out, <laughs> how yeah. certain communities became the scapegoat, and then later on as it kind of evolved, into just a, a, as a worldwide pandemic or epidemic and you see this and you're like oh well hopefully you know the next generation will be different and especially within the last several years with the evolution of prep and the int- or the introduction of prep into the lexicon into practice into the culture you see that changing but then you also didn't see a lot of changes on the other end. And I was like, maybe it's going to be different. Maybe the next generation, they'll get better health education. They'll have better knowledge of it. But to, see, to hear you say that like, people are still associating yep. consciously or unconsciously to it being a MSM related or even in proximity disease. I think that's just horrible. It is. And it's confusing because... I was born in 1993, so probably maybe the, the peak time or the tail end of the peak time, and started engaging in sexual activity in the new millennium. And you would think, so like to me, I wasn't born during a time where I was seeing the head, well, I was, the headlines were happening, I couldn't read. But <laughs> as a teenager, young adult, HIV AIDS is not in the news the way that it was when it first rolled out and hit the scene. I've been alive. PrEP came, hit the scene in 2012 when I went to college. So like prime time for PrEP or like for me, had I known about PrEP, I didn't know about PrEP until I started this job for real. But it's interesting because I think similar, now this one sound like a stretch to some, but I think similar to things like racism, when we don't talk about sex education and things like HIV, which are very taboo and specifically the black community, I can't speak nationwide, even though I know nationwide sex education is in the toilet, but you don't have to necessarily teach certain things explicitly to perpetuate them so the fact that no one ever did their due diligence on the back end to like you know what let's correct some of the wrongs let's correct some of the things we said about HIV when it first hit the scene let's let people know that it's not just affecting gay men let's let people know these different things or how HIV works I again the number of people that I have to explain what exactly HIV is is interesting to me but we'll come back to that but because no one has corrected any of those fallacies we just keep letting them roll we just keep letting them rock and we don't I don't no one ever talked to me about HIV AIDS before I got this job that was not a conversation my family was having and I don't think it was because of like biases about the disease as far as like the people who have it more so not talking about sex period not understanding personal vulnerability as a family headed by I have a matriarchal family my grandfather is dead all if we have a family full of women, I got one uncle. <laughs> and as like I said, as a matriarchal family, black women are very much at high risk for HIV that we had never talked about before I got this job last year. So I think there is again, there are misconceptions that are causing people to not not only not correct past wrong things, but not passing on any new information. We're just simply not talking about it and therefore not progressing. So even though we got kids born in the new millennia who probably have the same 
implicit bias or biases or ideas about HIV that we had in the 80s because no one has told them that that stuff was wrong or taught them anything new. The number of people that I encounter who were born in the 2000s that don't know about PrEP, it's like, yeah, it came out in 2012, but in 2012, you would have actually been around the age where like commercials and things and people should have been talking to you about it and no one is. So it's very interesting that we have come so far scientifically, but socially we are still in the 1980s when it comes to HIV. That is really interesting. Now, how, with your organization's focus being centered on Black women and girls, how does your lens kind of cater to them, especially thinking of your own, just your personal experience of not communicating with your with your family members about or amongst your family members about HIV AIDS? What is your approach in terms of just communicating this to your client base? It makes me want to go that much harder knowing what I know about our personal vulnerability. So now I find myself, though it's resisted by some, talking about HIV any chance I get, especially with Black women that I encounter. Being in a new city, I am in a, in a unique place in the sense that being an extrovert, I used Bumble BFF, I made friends, I do talk to strangers like and when I meet a black girl when I see a the rare black girl that I encounter like at the center when I'm doing testing I do everything I can to teach her hey this is what prep is this is, I don't want you your test is non-reactive now and I want it to stay non-reactive and I'm I want you to know that I'm passionate about this because I'm here with you and we in the same group I think it it makes me that more passionate about something that I maybe wouldn't have been passionate about otherwise knowing what I know about black women and knowing what I know about our unique you know, in public health, every every group has a way that you need to talk to them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So tailoring my conversation with people to reflect not only my education, but that we share a cultural background. We share, we have this thing in common. I'm right here with you. I'm not above this. I'm not exempt from this. I get tested for HIV. I know what it's like to be afraid to get tested. And it makes me, on the hard days, I think, knowing who my client base is and knowing that on a like a large scale career level, I always want to work with women, women of color, girls. It makes me on the hard days. It's like, okay, you know what? Yeah, this sucks, but I'm going to reach, reach one today. <laughs> I'm going to be a black girl today. It's going to, it's going to work out. Or like when I, most recently I did a, a talk at technical college. So like I did a talk there. There was a room full of Latina or Latina girls and, um, Afro-Latina girl it just it filled me up like yeah the subject matter sucks but I'm so happy that y'all are receiving this and then their teacher let me know that they were telling other people yeah which is awesome which is what the job which again it's so interesting that I have ended up in HIV because as a health educator I love that when I left you went and told people what you learned that's like a health educator's dream it's HIV so it's not all those are not the rewards that I get every day but Yes, I hope that answers your question. No, you definitely answered it because I think it's important because even like a lot of the literature, because I'll say this, prior to coming into maternal child health, I was in HIV AIDS space too, but more so really interested in understanding girls' decision-making around sexual health, like their own sexual autonomy in relationships. It'd be platonic, casual, or romantic, whatever you want to <laughs> whatever you wanted to call it. 
And I remember a lot of the research that I would uncover, especially say at HBCUs or even in other like just black enclaves here in the United States or even just African countries, young girls, even when they were still educated about sexual health and just being, you know, having that level of literacy around their sexual health, they still made decisions that were more socially based. So their their decisions were based on their social conditions versus the education they were receiving. And that happened several times. You know, when you looked at the literature, you did your own analysis on secondary data sets that are available around sexual health, and you're just like, okay, am I missing something? Like, why aren't women... Like you receive the information, you go tell your friend, you you understand it, you conceptualize it, but then in practice, you're still not doing yeah. it. And that was the thing that just I kept on running into personally in terms of my own journey in HIV that was just, it just let the, the air out the room a lot of times. And I was like, I don't know what else to do. Yeah. You know, as a researcher, we're, we continue to find this this thing and like what is it and so that's honestly one of the reasons why i left (laughs) hiv aids research because i felt like i was just running into a wall and there was no understanding in making this much making the conversation widening the conversation really widening the conversation and really interjecting more of a reproductive lens yeah hiv AIDS. And it wasn't until I got into maternal child health that I started to come back to HIV, AIDS, and sexual health and say, oh, this starts way before yeah. you are having sex or you're even interested in sex. This goes into just understanding your body yes, and giving you agency about body and learning about your reproductives. Yes. So two things that I am seeing that you probably also saw. My boss uses this term a lot, and I'm not sure if it's a common term or this is what she'd be saying, but it seems like there is a level of like performative trust. Like when you're in a relationship, it's almost like social conditioning supersedes knowledge. But because you're in a relationship, you know that a way that you can show your partner you trust them is to not use protection or vice versa. Where some people, when you bring in things like domestic violence and things like that, if I ask to start using condoms now, this could go very poorly for me. I could lose my partner. I could be harmed. What have you? And it, it like I said, it's like social conditioning supersedes that logic. And then also when it comes to that whole topic of agency and understanding, understanding that you have choices, that there, that this is something that you can take control of, not even just HIV, but just in general, your body, that there is, that you don't have to submit to a man sexually. If this is not something you're interested in, be it protection or a position, you don't have to to do that. But often I feel like women specifically, which is why we are so uniquely vulnerable, we often feel like we got to kind of go with the flow or go with whatever the man says. Because I don't know. Now, I can't speak to this entirely because I though I'm an allied community, I'm not in the community. So I don't know how non-heterosexual relationship goes, but I definitely feel like in heteronormative relationships, women feel very much the need to, especially when it comes to sex, do whatever the man says, 
And, and again, against potentially logic, like, girl, you know, you don't want to be pregnant. Why are you not insisting on protection? You mm-hmm. get tested regularly and you would like to stay healthy. Why are you not insisting on protection or taking PrEP? Because pr- this comes up a lot with PrEP, too. I yep. always explain to people how how effective PrEP is, that the side effects are any different. I, For me personally, I like to compare it to both birth control and SSRIs. Those are two things that I have had experience with that I know the side effects of. And I'm like, y'all, this ain't no different than because people, which I think is funny. I think it's a default move because I don't think people really care about side effects, but it's the easiest thing to ask or like, oh, mm-hmm. side effects. Girl, you know you don't care about these side effects, but I tell people that they're no different than starting any other medication. You might feel a little nausea, might have diarrhea, dry mouth, dizziness, tiredness for like the first two weeks as your body adjusts. After that, I don't know anyone who has long-term taken prep and feels sick every day. That's just not how it goes. But yet, and still, you explain the side effects, how they're mild, that prep is over 99% effective when taken correctly. And they're like, no, I'm good. Why are you, why do you, why are you quote unquote good? Yeah, no, I get that. Because now you don't want to take something because you don't want people to think, which again, it's prevention medication, but it's so closely tied to HIV. You wouldn't want people to know that you take it. As women, we literally set alarms for our birth control. And we don't we don't care who hears it. It might be set for three o'clock in the afternoon. And if it goes off in class, it goes off in class. You don't care. But God forbid someone finds out you're taking an HIV prevention medication. Oof. So you'd rather not take it and run and take your chances. When we already know men ain't getting tested anyway. Men going off of the barometer of the woman they sleeping with. Oh, she good. So I'm good. That's who you put your trust in. OK. <laughs> OK, sis. go off. <laughs> yeah. Let's air out. Gosh. We have so much work to do. But when you think about your day to day and you think about your interactions with black women and black and brown communities, what is the biggest challenge you see in terms of their either understanding or involvement in HIV? I think about this a lot, but I don't think I would. I'm not going to say that it's not a level of understanding because I know they I know they understand what I'm saying, but I really do think specifically when it comes to cis heterosexual black women i really do think there is some sort of cognitive dissonance truly when it comes to understanding vulnerability it's almost like everyone is walking around like teenagers in cars oh if i drink a little and drive it won't happen to me there's something and again it could be because of the lack of understanding about the mechanism that is hiv or like how it works medica i don't know but people really don't think that it can happen to them I had a friend when I first started this job. I told you I live here in Florida. We all lived up in Naples. We went down there. You know, we're kicking it. And one of our friends is married. It's a biracial girl. She's married to a white man. They've been together since they were in high school. We all the same age. So they've been together a long time. And it's funny because I got to tell this part of the story, too, because I feel like it brings it full circle or why this is so confusing. The night before, we was, you know, sitting by the pool talking about how her, her man had briefly broke up when we were in college. And she kind of, you know, explored her options. They had been together since they were in high school. Dude. So the day I'm to her about the new job that I just got, because I had just started Labor Day weekend. I had been there like a week and a half. So telling her about my job, they're like, oh, well, what do you do? Because they were like, congratulating me. And I was telling her about HIV. And because I was hot on learning, I was telling her everything that I knew. And she was like, oh, I don't have to worry about that. I'm married. And I was like, well, well did you not listen to me? What I'm telling you right now is that what I'm learning is it's a lot of that, but that's not true. 86% of women who have HIV got the virus from a man. So like being heterosexual, being married, 
the data doesn't quite match for monogamous relationships being safe. Not safe is not a great word to use, but it doesn't lower your risk. Yeah, it doesn't lower your risk at all because a lot of women can't tell you the number off the top of my head right now. But like in 2019, 20, close to 20,000 women got a new HIV diagnosis. That just don't calculate right with the pairings of relationships. So you being married doesn't stop this, but she legitimately didn't want to talk about it. And I was like, well, this is awkward because you are the kind of people that, and I'm learning now that that was just the beginning of a long road of me encountering people who swear that they don't need this information. They don't need it. But yeah, the women that I encounter, even just talking casually, like I said, about work in general in my life, there's something about that people really just don't think it's that they can that they can get HIV. And I, I'm not sure why, though. That, that is the plaguing question. I'm not sure why people feel so emboldened. And I think it goes back to, again, implicit biases about who gets HIV. No matter how often you tell women that gay men are not the only people getting HIV, and for Black women, I think it's down low, quote unquote, I know that's a terrible term, yeah, but positive yeah. gay men, they really think that that's the people getting it. Or when a woman gets it, that's what they got it from. No, girl, like that's not, that's not always the case. But because, again, the way that we see, I mentioned earlier that we don't see HIV in the media that we, in the way that we used to, like in the 80s and 90s. However, anytime you see a story about HIV now, it's the most dramatic case of man going to jail for. Totally agree. Totally agree. So we're getting towards the end of our interview. So I have uh, two final questions. So it's a two-parter. So in your current view, what does tomorrow look like? And then... Outside of your field, just for you personally, Diana, what does tomorrow look like for you? Ooh, okay. So the literal part of me is like, well, tomorrow's Thursday. Tomorrow, I think that'd be what am I doing? In my current field, that's a tough one because I know you don't literally mean tomorrow, but no. (laughs) Going forward, just like it's just a glaring Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Well, let's go with me personally first, because I really do not know what's going on in the near future for HIV or me in HIV, because it's just, I said recently on Twitter, <laughs> uh, that's where I'm my most authentic self, that I don't see, I know we have currently the in the epidemic plan, that's like a national plan, as it's a multi-level plan, getting people tested, all of that. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the ending, HIV, ending the epidemic plan. Mm-hmm. From a professional standpoint, which is so bleak, I really don't see an end coming. So it makes me curious of what the future of HIV looks like, because to me, the future seems so similar to the past. I don't see, other than from a pharmaceutical standpoint, I don't see much change happening, despite the work that I know is being done every day. Boots on the ground. I work with other organizations. I see them. I know what they're doing. And on an individual level also, they are doing great things in the lives of individuals. But as a whole, I just don't, I don't see the change. And I think that's one of the things, like, I know I'm going to keep saying this. I just see myself staying in the field because I really do feel so bleak. The outlook to me seems so dim. And I've only been in the field a couple months. When I meet people who are 15, 20 years in the game, they're like, I love this. And I'm like, how could you love this when you aren't making any impact? And that's not a dig at like an individual, like a literal person. Mm-hmm. How do y'all feel like you love this? I don't, you can't tell me that in these 15, 20 years, you've seen that much of a change. I know you have it because you wouldn't have a job anymore if you did. Like, me anyway. I don't feel like, now that is not to say that obviously they have their own personal professional goals and markers and accomplishments. So there's got to be some part in that. 
but holistically like I almost already feel like that I'm doing the same thing every day with no true change being made and it's not I don't think tied to my organization I truly think that what I'm seeing is so reactive and I think that's also part of America and our health system in general we're so reactive and not proactive Mm -hmm. and what HIV needs is proactiveness we need people to be engaged in testing we need people to be engaged in things like prep and conversation even just things like conversation and we're not doing that so in the field we in the field i don't know what tomorrow looks like besides slightly bleak not the majority yeah that's fair that's perfectly fair but that ignis and and that is the thing that's gonna that will probably ultimately be the end of my time is just not feeling and i know obviously everything is not about intrinsic reward and how i feel but i also am a person who not only am i a chaotic sagittarius but i feel like i'm a person who is constantly thinking about the next thing to my detriment at times but like that's forward motion and HIV is not giving me the forward motion energy and we're constantly revisiting the same concept we're still telling people to get tested and work condoms if we can get past that in an effective way I don't see how we're going to get a 30% change in in some of these numbers Action rates, yeah yeah and one of the numbers I think is by like 20 2025 2030 they're looking for like a 90% change babe that's not happening and it's, I'm sorry, but I would love to eat my words. And in 2025, I'm going to check in. And in 2030, I'm going to check in. But I just, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like that's the direction that we're going in, unfortunately. Then, for me, tomorrow is bright. I am on the cusp of being 29 and a half. And I'm excited <laughs> to see where 30 will take me, where my current endeavors are taking me. I feel like I have always been a person that could rest in being intelligent. That got me very far as far as academics and things. But I don't think I've ever been in the space where, where I am now as comfortable as I am to be authentic and true to every part of me, not just being smart, be having my podcast, doing something I'm passionate about, pursuing right now I'm on a debt-free journey because I'm I'm just seeking freedom. And I do think mm-hmm. a space mentally and physically, like both with my partner physically and emotionally safe in my home and all those things to be able to truly thrive. So I feel like my tomorrow is bright. Now, what does it look like? Um, <laughs> in, in, in my ideal tomorrow, I'm interviewing Kiki Palmer and Issa Rae and all the girls, all the Black women that I love. I feel like I'm moving toward a space where my platform will be something that will attract people like that. I love it. I, I, I want to, we're going to keep saying it till I believe it, believe it. And I think that would be my one hindrance. It sounds good, but continuing to believe it. Just keep saying it every yeah. day. <laughs> saying it every day. That makes total sense to me. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast so people can come to it? Oh, for sure. Okay. So my podcast is called Our Space. It is a shoot off of my overall platform, which is called Change Our Outcomes. That name actually came from a project that I did in grad school, and it was tied directly to Black women and breast cancer. It was a project for social media, engagement, all this and that. I revamped the idea when I got my job at the university. I brought Change Our Outcomes back with a completely different lens. It was not focused on breast cancer, but more so physical activity, chronic disease, and community building. And it's evolved a little bit more as I'm growing and changing to be more so about resource sharing and connecting Black women with resources that they may not know exist to them 
there are black women out in the world doing very niche and commonplace things and offering services to women that look like us and they the women don't know about them there are so many so many things or on the flip side there are women who have great ideas and don't know how to get started or how to find capital because we know black women are out here starting businesses but we're putting our own money into it and Mm -hmm. part of that is because well bank loans and all that but also not knowing about how to get some of these things so i want to shed a light on not only the women offering the services but just across the board their services exist so with my podcast i interview women in public it started as women in public health and doctors because i wanted to bring health information in a palatable way to women profit women men women authors just whoever because again all those women in theory are offering some sort of service that another black woman might not know about so yeah that is the podcast our space we're talking to women we're shedding light we're sharing resources and we're just trying to make tomorrow better for everybody (laughs) that's the goal i hear that i receive it please check out our podcast it is amazing and your social media presence i have to say is pretty darn good and maybe (laughs) this just you know you're younger and you can do it is there anything else that you would like to share that's my last question for you no, I, I don't think so. I, I do try my best to get everything out that I'm going to say, <laughs> uh, even if it's a little long-winded. I just hope that your listeners, despite probably coming to you to hear about maternal and infant health, I didn't bring that today, but I hope that didn't, though. In a way, you you right, in a way. <laughs> I yeah. hope that whatever, everything that we talked about when, the, when your listeners hear it and my listeners hear it, that it resonates them in a way that it is helpful. That is always my goal with any interaction that I have both at work, socially, that's how I try to aim to build friendships, is being a resource and being authentic and true to myself in a way that is receptive and helpful to other people. Mm-hmm. Not saying that I want to give all of myself away to people, but I do want to share myself with people. I try my best to be vulnerable and honest. So yeah, I got nothing else to say other than listen to your podcast, come listen to my podcast. We're helping the women. If, yeah, we are. Thing that I said sparked you in any sort of way. I'm always open to conversation, DMs, emails, whatever. Find me on social media at Change Our Outcomes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please continue to keep the dialogue going about BMCH. Tell a friend, share, like, download. We are now available on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, and Audible. Please also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have questions about today's interview, please check out our show notes, all details about the interviewee, and any of the programs or websites that they mentioned will always be there. We hope to see you soon. We hope to hear from you. And let's keep the dialogue going.